and was very loosely based on the real War of the Roses, which was a series of civil wars fought to control the English throne in the Middle Ages and not a battle between two competing florists. <laughs> Hello and welcome to It's Not TV. It's a podcast. I'm Nicole and along with me is David. Hello, hello. This podcast is where we celebrate HBO's prestige programming with subpar commentary. Each episode we'll look into the show from HBO's past and tell you if it's worth your watch. Today, Nicole, we are talking about Game of Thrones. For our season one finale, we are actually doing something a little special. Since we have a lot to say about Game of Thrones, if you've seen the show or read the books, we'll have a spoiler-filled bonus episode dropping in two weeks. We'll unpack the weedsy differences between the books and TV show, our favorite weird book conspiracy theories, and we'll talk royal cats. Sir Pounce for the win. But for now, <laughs> let's start at the beginning. Nicole, why don't you tell us when Game of Thrones came out? Okay. Game of Thrones premiered on HBO in the United States on April 17th. 2011 and concluded on may 19th 2019 right before the world shut down they had 73 episodes broadcast over eight seasons averaging 500 minutes a season that's ridiculous even though their later seasons were a little bit shorter it's the average in early seasons the budget was like six or seven million an episode but by season eight it was 15 million dollars per episode they were extended if memory serves me yeah, there was actually, this show was so popular, Nicole, that each week there would be a big debate when the runtime was released. That they'd be like, oh my god, it's 72 minutes. Oh, it's 68 minutes. And there was like a big thing about like how long each episode would be. So when HBO posted. Like currency. Yeah, it was like a big deal that this one's longer than the last one. Or this one's not as long as the last one, so it can't be as good. Yeah, it was like a big debate during that final season. Oh, this one's really long, so it's definitely a battle one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> The series received 59 Primetime Emmy Awards, the most by any drama series, and Peter Dinklage was nominated 40 times for his portrayal as Tyrion. So what is Game of Thrones about? Game of Thrones is a medieval fantasy. Nicole, have, have you watched fantasy? Are you a fantasy person before Game of Thrones? Hugely so, yes. So you were like Lord of the Rings and, and all of those? Harry Potter, the Lightbringer series. <laughs> I'm like showing all of my nerd cards right now. <laughs> so I wasn't really into fantasy before Game of Thrones. Like I liked Lord of the Rings. Oh. But Game of Thrones is a medieval fantasy. It's about the struggle of humanity to work together against all odds and uh, defeat the greater evil. An evil that seems to be the difference between the obstacle right in front of you and like the bigger threat to life as we know it. Each character tells their own story to define and defend their weight and claim to power. And there's a whole bunch of different plot lines that commingle into a single thread eventually and the ultimate grab for power. Political thriller meets medieval fantasy. And what's the style of casting? So this is an ensemble cast. What is that? <laughs> so this is an ensemble cast where Sean Bean, who plays the character of Ned Stark, he's kind of the lead character, but everyone's kind of the lead character in a show like this. So everyone kind of holds their weight. You'll jump around. The books that they're based on, which we'll talk about, uh, have several different POVs per novel. So several different sort of lead characters. Mm -hmm. And that's how this show kind of operates where you jump around a lot. 
but you and I both watched this show. Every single minute. We were a little obsessed. I think both of us. A lot obsessed. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think I had took a different route of obsession because like, I think you're way more into like the deep lore. Like you're more of the maester of this show. And I'm just like, <laughs> more like the rumor mill. <laughs> Yeah, I think you were constantly triggering conversations on our group of friends and group of coworkers. You were the one making sure people were talking about it. Well, I mean, had to get all the voices in my head out. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you and our producer sort of became friends, is talking about this show, yes? He tolerates me still. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we both watched this live. Uh, we talked about it a lot together, a lot with our, our group of friends. A few seasons in, I actually went back and read the books. You read some of the books too, yes? Yeah, I, I read three of them. Okay. Yeah, so Game of Thrones is based on a series by writer George R.R. R. Martin called A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, the first book of which, A Game of Thrones, was published in 1996, and it was like super loosely inspired by The War of the Roses which was a series of civil wars fought to control the English throne in the Middle Ages. The real English throne. Yes. Again, I'm not a fantasy guy, but most fantasy shows take place in like medieval England. The series was very popular. It was a well-selling fantasy series. When four of the books had been published and, and were very popular in the, the fantasy realm, uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss were big fans of the series. They had read the first four books. And they approached George R.R. R. Martin about adapting the series for film. David Benioff at that point was most known for co-writing X-Men Origins Wolverine. So credit to Martin for taking the meeting. <laughs> and he wanted to make sure that D&D, &D, as they are affectionately referred to, uh, knew his material and were like real fans. So the author, George R.R. R. Martin, actually asked them what they thought of a sort of riddle that was hidden within the novels. And that is the this theory of R plus L equals J. And our book readers will know what that is. But it's sort of this like only the true fans knew about this. And Martin asked D&D &D about it and they gave an answer that was satisfactory for him on what they thought the R plus L equals J theory was. So he said, yeah, let's make a show. And I think that George has mentioned like DB and David were not the first two to approach him about adapting the series. Yeah, the series was hugely popular and it, it had already started to have novellas and comics. Was George R. R. Martin a well-off man before the show? Oh, yes, yes. And okay. in the fantasy realm, he was already considered he was he was up there with some of the other big authors in that mm -hmm. realm. But his works hadn't yet moved beyond that that sort of fantasy novel realm yet. Martin had been involved in TV adaptations before of other work. He was a producer and writer on Beauty and the Beast, the TV show. So he had done work before, so he was around Hollywood. But D&D, &D, knowing about the R plus L equals J, showed that they were really deep into the lore of his own books, which consists of seven novels, mm -hmm. five of which have been published. Game of Thrones was the first novel. Uh, again, there's lots of novellas and prequels and all sorts of other stuff that have been written. Martin did hope to have finished the book series by the time the adaptation on HBO caught up to him, but... No such luck. Yeah, no such luck. He's only gotten one book out in that time, book five. So for the final few seasons of Game of Thrones, they actually had to piece together from uh, plot lines and notes of what Martin gave to them. He still remained with the show as a producer and an occasional writer, but the last few seasons are more about D&D &D using Martin's notes to create the story rather than using the novels for a direct adaptation. Right. And we'll kind of talk about the good and the bad about that. But D&D &D, since this show haven't been heard from much 
at the height of Game of Thrones, HBO announced that D&D were going to head up a series called Confederate, which was going to follow an alternate history USA uh, where the Confederates weren't beaten during the Civil War. But following the dicey idea of two white guys leading a show about modern day slavery. And then there was a very divisive response to the Game of Thrones finale, which we'll talk about. Uh, the project had since been canceled. Uh, D&D had also announced that they were working on a Star Wars trilogy of films, and that has also gone very quiet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since Game of Thrones, we haven't heard much from D&D. Are they still on that island they said they were going to after the final episode aired? <laughs> so <laughs> I do have sympathy for, for the two of them. They produced the entire series. They were writers on many of the episodes. They were the showrunners. And those eight seasons, you mentioned the budget. They were huge. That's a lot of work to oversee. So them needing a bit of a mm -hmm. break. I think makes a lot of sense to me, regardless of how the show finished. Them needing a break, I think, may make sense. Um, how many years between the last few episodes? <laughs> Centuries. That is true. <laughs> it took them a while. Yeah, and there was also a a pilot that didn't get aired. They ended up scrapping it and recasting a lot of it. So bumpy start. Yeah, it was a bumpy start, but it got huge. Clearly, like we, the growth from the first few seasons, first few episodes, we went from like this small cult like following to something as big as the marvel movies like millions of people were invested by the end of this series yeah the first season was like two to three million viewers an episode which is it's just good numbers for an hbo show we've we've talked about this uh, on the podcast but by the final season i mean they were clocking in 10 12 13 million viewers it's I don't know that if you just started watching TV today, like if you're a young Xennial or Millennial or a Zoomer or whatever they're called, <laughs> that you can understand how big this was. Game of Thrones in its last season was the water cooler show, like maybe the last one that was this big. Yeah. So the show would premiere Sunday night. Monday mornings, everyone would just come to the office and talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah. I spent a lot of time throughout the week thinking like, what? What did that mean? And what, what is so-and-so going to do? Did you do like I did, which is like YouTubers would be doing breakdowns of the episode and you'd be watching it for little lore beats and things you missed? Oh, yeah. I would get it on Twitter immediately. <laughs> I hashtag Game of Thrones. What are people saying? What are people doing? There's some people who would live vlog right after the show and do their initial reaction oh geez <laughs> i was there yeah i would leave the episode and like the first thing i do is i'd go to reddit and say like what did they think i would shell back at them <laughs> no yeah i don't think so no you think so well it got so big that even by the the final seasons hbo was doing like these little mini documentaries like these little making ofs yeah at the end of each episode so you'd stay on and you'd watch this mini making of with like interviews with the cast. And then there would be like, yeah, uh, like behind the thrones or talk or game of talk of thrones or whatever. After the thrones. Yeah. After the thrones, there would be these shows where people were getting paid just to talk about the show you just watched. <laughs> Bill Simmons has a good relationship with HBO and his like he, he mainly focuses on sports, but his ringer website covers everything you can think of yeah and they have a subsection for game of thrones well for game of thrones for, at the time and so he used that connection to put his editors and, and content producers i mean these people have current podcasts today one of them left the ringer and went to crooked media so these are real content creators who create rich and valuable content who were on HBO talking about 
Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) People made their careers in some cases talking about Game of Thrones. Yeah. Which is wild to think about. I was, you know, a young man during the height of Sopranos and Sopranos was huge. No one talked about Sopranos that way, the way they talked about Game of Thrones. And maybe it's they weren't selling Funko Pops of the Sopranos. There wasn't blankets and gear like I've seen kids with Game of Thrones plushies. And I'm like, you're not old enough to watch this show. Why do you have a plushie dragon from Game of Thrones? Like this show is not suitable for you, child. When this show first came out, when I saw the ads for this, I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Mm hmm. And I watched the first episode, and, and as we'll talk about, there's a lot of great stuff in the first episode that got me hooked. I wasn't blown away hmm. because this wasn't my genre. This wasn't my thing. But I, I was like, wow, this is really well done for a fantasy show. <laughs> I, I felt like elitist at the time because I hadn't seen good fantasy outside of Lord of the Ring, right? I'd, I'd seen some TV and some crappy movies. But this kind of like I bought it because it was so grounded. You know, it's kind of this low fantasy setting, uh, at least to start in the series. It's not everyone's throwing magic at people. So I kind of got hooked. I I did like a lot of the cast, though, even though a lot of them are unknowns. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, the whole series cast, we could do an entire episode just on the cast. Yeah. Talking through the characters, talking through the actors. But for the sake of everybody's ears, <laughs> we're going to bring it up to a higher level and just talk about the main characters from this episode, starting with our good old buddy Eddie, Ned Eddard, played by Sean Bean. Sean plays uh, Ned Stark, as you mentioned, and and he's he's a lord of, of Winterfell, so he's up north. Very stoic guy, very loyal, um, very smart. Seems like the most level-headed of all the characters we meet this episode. And his best buddy, the king, Robert Baratheon, is played by Mark Addy. Bobby B. Robert Baratheon's fucking awesome. So he's the king in the show. He's Ned's best friend. They haven't seen each other in a long time. And he's he's fat and funny and jovial, but maybe not such a great king. I don't know. Cersei Lannister, played by Lena Headley. So she was in 300. She was in Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Is that movies or a TV show? That was a TV show on Fox that isn't as bad as it should have been. It's actually pretty entertaining. It should have been bad? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a, a giant big budget sci-fi show on Fox. <laughs> Cersei is Bobby B's wife, so she's the queen. She comes from a rich family, the Lannisters, and she married Bobby B. And she seems like kind of a bitch. She's kind of like she makes some inappropriate comments throughout. She's not very nice in this first episode. Catelyn Stark, played by Michelle Fairley. So she's shown up on Suits, and she was Hermione Granger's mom in Harry Potter. Catelyn in the pilot episode, I think, is one of the characters I liked the most. I really liked that Catelyn's character was pretty straightforward. She's a little mean to one of her kids, um, but I totally bought why. And uh, she's one of the characters I think I sympathized with early on in the series. Daenerys Targaryen, played by the lovely Amelia Clark, who had two brain aneurysms while filming the show. Because of some of the plot lines in season eight? No, David. <laughs> so she was one of, she's a fresh one. She she didn't really have anything before this. So this kind of made her a star. After this, she blew up. She was in Me Before You. She was fantastic in Solo. I think she was also in a Terminator movie. Yeah, she was in the shittiest one, which is really saying something. Because after Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, it is, it's a, Also, though, in the show, her eyebrows are played by Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) 
<laughs> Viserys Targaryen, played by Harry Lloyd, who is in lots of TV. So the Targaryens, Daenerys and Viserys, they are often another country that we'll talk about during this pilot episode. They're platinum blondes. They're in another country and they're, they're up to some shenanigans. They may or may not think they have a claim to the throne. Does she take a bath in this series, in this episode? And I think the nurse is like, or the maid was like, um, that's too hot still. And she was like, mm. and she gets in anyway. No burns. She doesn't get burned when she gets into the, the hot pool. But what was really weird is before that scene, when her brother fondled her boob, a lot of incest in this show. Yeah. A definitely. lot. I would say that any incest is more than I expected. Yeah. There's a lot of that. And then there's Khal Drogo, played by Jason Momoa. Yeah, and he's he's uh, like a horse lord who gets involved in this, and uh, he's awesome looking. He's he's fantastic. And he doesn't speak English, he speaks Dothraki, and he seems very menacing. So we've got our players. Again, there's dozens and dozens of characters who pass through this pilot and through the season, but these are kind of our major players uh, during the pilot, which is called Winter is Coming. So let's dig into what happens on our first episode of Game of Thrones. So we're introduced to four of the many places in the fictional continents called Westeros and Essos, which are separated by the Narrow Sea. Most of the story takes place in the Seven Kingdoms, a small group of dominions that we learn used to be independent until some foreigners with dragons showed up <laughs> a few hundred years ago. As always happens. And unified the lands through fire and blood. We kick things off way in the north, where the Night's Watch is scouting an encampment that seems to have been slaughtered by something unnatural. And the Night's Watch is like a group of bastards and orphans and criminals that sort of defend the world, right, from these sort of wildlings up north, right, these kind of savages. And they actually have to take an oath to be part of this, that they won't have sex, they won't do a lot of things, but one of them is that they won't leave. They can never leave. And so oh, yes. the one survivor of this mission leaves. <laughs> he deserts his post. <laughs> he rides south of the wall. That kind of divides the civilization from what they would call savages, the wildlings in the north. And it's a giant fucking wall. Like, it's a giant wall of ice, like hundreds of feet high. Yeah. I think the inspiration was from Hadrian's Wall in Rome. But Hadrian's Wall, like, you could leap over. I mean, most people could leap over. I have bad knees. I couldn't leap over Hadrian's Wall, but a, like, sturdy Roman could. And Hadrian's Wall was what divided Romans from the barbarians. And so this is kind of similar logic. But this is frozen and ten times bigger. So then we go south, southish, down in King's Landing. It seems the hand of the king, the king's advisor, has died. And we learn that is because he knew the secrets of a brother and his sister, the queen of Westeros. And they're just openly talking about this. They're like, what if he told somebody else? And they're like right next to the body where there's like a religious ceremony happening, kind of like a wake. And they're just like, what if everybody finds out our secrets? And it's like, you're openly discussing the fact that this man is dead. You're standing right next to him. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. We had something to do with his death. It's not very secretive. Back in the north. So we meet our deserter from the first scene in Winterfell, where we are introduced to the Stark family. As the father, the head of the family, beheads the deserter and does not heed his warning about what he saw beyond the wall. Yeah, and Ned Stark, who's who's this father, he has a great line here where he makes his sons watch him behead this man for ruining his oath. And he gives like a cool speech. 
about, you know, y- you have to follow your oaths and, and honor your oaths. And when he chops off this young man's head, he says to his son, do you know why I didn't? He's like, yeah, he, he broke the law. And he's like, no, but he who makes the sentence has to swing the sword. And so it's like this cool honor moment where he's like saying, you know, the man who passes the sentence, the guy who says that this violent thing has to happen should at least be the one to do it. He's beheading a man, which is awful, but the guy did break a law and at least he's the one saying like, hey, let's do the honorable thing. Let's make it a quick death, a painless death, and I'll be the one to do it. So it's a nice introduction, I think, to Ned Stark and what his family values up in Winterfell. And also knowing that if you desert your post, you're going to die. He'd prefer to die by beheading than have one of the yeah. things that he saw kill him. Yeah, like something magic or something going on there, something weird. And yeah, I, it's a good point that he'd rather take a blade to the head than deal with that shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So then uh, about a month later or so in the timeline, in the same episode, the Starks received the royal court in Winterfell as the news of their dear friend and it seems like they're like three besties the king mm-hmm. edard and the man who died the hand of the king so he's come the king has come to ask his other best friend and only other man he thinks he can trust to come down to king's landing and be his hand and we find out that through the course of their friendship the king had fallen in love with ned's sister yeah one of the first things he does when he goes to winterfell is he says take me to her And mind you, he has his wife there with him, Cersei Lannister. But King Bobby B says, take me to her. And so they go down to sort of the crypts underneath Winterfell, where they they keep all of their family and like these stone sort of structures. And he like very sweetly places like a feather uh, on her crypt. And he says that he still dreams about killing him, the man who took her, implying that you know, this is this is a a long ago thing. Mm -hmm. And Eddard says to him, they're all dead. And the king says, not all of them, Mm -hmm. which. We'll talk about a little later. Right. And the king says there that, you know, if things had gone as planned, he would have married her and he and Ned would have been blood. So they were best friends growing up. They kind of imply that they grew up sort of together. They both had a, the same mentor who is the hand of the king that you mentioned, uh, who, who was recently passed away. And he says, we would have been blood. And he says, we could have ruled Westeros together. And then he says, and we still can be. I have a son. You have a daughter. So along with asking him to come and be his new hand of the king, he's also implying to him that, you know, your family's going to be married into this royal bloodline. So it is a great honor that he's bestowing Ned and his family. And he says, Ned, you're the only one I could trust. So it's this kind of like, not that he's blackmailing him, but he's kind of doing this deal with him where he's saying, listen, you got to come help me. You're the only one I trust. He doesn't say that there was a mysterious circumstance around his friend's death, but he just says, I need you. You're the only one I could trust. And also... I'm going to let your daughter marry the next king of Westeros. So you kind of have to do this. Ned doesn't want to be the hand of the king. He doesn't want to go to King's Landing. No. Uh, when when Ned and his wife talk about this, they both imply that King's Landing can't be trusted. And, and yeah. in their interactions, right, there's a lot of banquets and festivals and stuff while the king is in town. And at every chance they get, the Starks seem like... They're nervous around the royal family and that they're nervous about going to King's Landing. They they mention, you know, you can't trust people there, you know, and and the hand of the king who died is actually Ned Stark's wife's brother-in-law. Um, so his wife, Catelyn, it, it was her sister who was married to the hand of the king. So there's this like connection between like all of these people who are in these big, great houses who are related and nobody wants to go to King's Landing. 
And it's probably a good idea that they don't. Yeah. <laughs> what's good? You know, they've all got this suspicion about it and about what goes on there. Like it's like I, I equated it to like the Amish being like, oh, you're going on Rumspringa to the big city. You know, it's like, don't go down to King's Landing now, right? You'll get into all sorts of trouble. So something is amiss about the sudden loss of the former hand and the Starks don't feel good about it. And hidden in a tower, brother and sister are reacquainting themselves as a young Stark with a fondness for climbing discovers them and is pushed off of this very high tower to avoid anybody finding out what he saw. And then there's the famous phrase that Jamie says as he pushes him, the things I do for love. So Jamie is the brother to the queen. Yep. And when you say that they're reacquainting themselves, you mean that the queen is getting it on with her brother. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. I, let's, not, let's not sugarcoat what's happening here. The So Bobby B, while he's asking his dear friend. About his true love. To come and help him in the kingdom. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's saying, this was a true love. I don't know what the fuck my wife's up to. His wife at that moment is having sex with her brother. Weird shit happening in Westeros right now. Definitely. And then we're going to travel now across the narrow sea to Essos, where the exiled prince and his sister, they are plotting their claim and rightful place in King's Landing on the Iron Throne. The prince has sold off his sister to a horse lord called Drogo. <laughs> in exchange for his army the wedding to the horse lord is not a dull affair at all <laughs> having several rapes and murders yeah one of the characters says that a dothraki wedding with only three murders is considered a dull affair so when we look at this the the targaryens here right who are hanging out in essos we know are somehow connected to the previous kings and queens of Westeros right before Bobby. We don't get the whole story here in this pilot, but obviously Robert Baratheon is the king now. Ned helped him win the throne, which implies some sort of battle or war that happened. And he obviously said that he killed the person who took his love from him. But here's these two Targaryen kids probably were related to them in some way. Again, we don't get all the details yet. And he still feels threatened by them. Still feels threatened by these little kids, but they don't have an army. One of their counselors here, one of the people who's helping taking care of them, says to uh, Viserys, he says, there are still people in Westeros who toast to your name. And basically what he's telling the Targaryens is that if they could get an army and get back to Westeros, that they will have people who support them there. So I do think while Robert Baratheon is, I mean, Daenerys is 14, her older brother Viserys is only a few years older, while they don't seem scary and don't yet have an army, what we're being told is he's going to get an army. And also what we're told is that there are people in Westeros who would back him. And in Westeros, we see something's going on. The queen's sleeping with her brother. The chief advisor to the king just died. There's shenanigans afoot. So I can understand Bobby B being nervous. Plus he's fat. He doesn't look like he could fight anymore. So Cal Drogo and Daenerys consummate their marriage. Yeah. In the book, it's a little more, a little more consensual. Yeah, it's at least ambiguous. Whereas in the show, she's crying. Yeah. So Cal Drogo doesn't speak the common tongue, as she says. He only speaks Dothraki. So a lot of people are like, oh, he bought you a white horse. So obviously he's happy with you. You're his queen now. <laughs> And he watches these murders. And yeah, and then to your point in the show, while he undresses her, he just keeps saying the word no. And she says, is that the only thing you know? And he goes, no. And then 
like he he undresses her and she tries to cover up and he does not let her and he does not let the audience like see her covered up like it's it's very much told from like a male perspective probably uh in the books that scene is told from her point of view and so it's it doesn't seem as graphic maybe and to your point it's more ambiguous on whether or not uh, it's consensual. It seems like it's a little more consensual, but in the book, it's from her perspective, so it's not quite as graphic. Whereas in the show, like literally, the camera zooms in on her chest while she's trying to cover it, and then he pulls her arms away. It's definitely more graphic, I think, in the show, right? Yeah, and I think that it favors, like you said, the male point of view. The same with the tower scene that we just talked about with Cersei and Jamie. In the book, Jamie is servicing Cersei. Oh, in the in the show. Jamie is dominating Cersei. Yeah, he's giving it to her doggy style in the show, as the kids would say. It's just another choice production. Certainly the show got criticism of this. Do you think this is them like over-sexualizing even sexual scenes like that were already sexual and they make them more graphic? HBOing it, making it you're coming here for violence and sex and the things that they won't show you on the regular networks? Sure, but... yeah. I think that the domination of women, especially sexually, yeah, on this show, because I haven't seen all of the shows on HBO, but on this show is very apparent. And there are times when you're like, I get it. She's raped. She doesn't want it. Can we move on, please? To that point, in the pilot, let's only talk about the pilot for a second. There's several sex scenes. Only the women are naked. There's no male nudity in the in the first episode. Game of Thrones will have some male nudity in the future. Once. One dong. Oh, geez. On the show, there are several sex scenes and, and lots of female nudity in the first episode. The only consensual sex scenes in the first episode, though, are of incest and prostitution. And I don't know. I don't think we count as prudish, Nicole, but this one kind of got to me a little bit. It's it's yeah. very, like, aggressive male gazy. A running theme you'll find in Game of Thrones is sexualizing incest and rape always through a male gaze. I mean, male writers, male directors, male producers, male show writers. It's we even had later in the series, there was an event where what the director thought was a consensual scene did not read as a consensual scene. And the director actually had to come out the following week and apologize saying it was his directing choices that made the scene appear non-consensual. So like that's how big a deal this becomes in the world of Game of Thrones. They actually refer to a lot of this uh, in Game of Thrones specifically as sex position, where they use sex scenes to further the plot, either by people explaining what's happening or by how do we show that this guy's a bad guy? Have him rape somebody. There you go. Now we know he's evil. Some of the icky stuff that appears in this series, you kind of get a taste of in the first episode. But those are the big ticket items from the pilot. But as you know, this went eight seasons. So what was this series all about? The whole series? So we, I think we set it up pretty well. What you get a taste of in the pilot is that shenanigans are happening in King's Landing. People are vying for power. Mm -hmm. And then we find out a little bit about the Targaryens. So what those lead to is that for the show, we very quickly go into something called the War of the Five Kings which is where Westeros is kind of fighting itself. Uh, it's, it's a civil war, essentially, over people fighting for the control of the Iron Throne. So this little medieval England that we're in with fantasy elements has people fighting each other. And then 
on the other side of the world, as we mentioned, across the Narrow Sea, the Targaryens now need to start building their power. And we saw the inklings of that in the first episode. But their plan is to come to Westeros and, hey, it'd be a lot easier to take over Westeros if it's all in a fucking shit show civil war. So these two plot lines kind of start inching their way towards each other. But overall, the series, there's treachery, incest, beheadings, poisonings, brothels, magic demon babies, dragons, zombies, and more. It's pretty great, honestly. There's a lot happening. Isn't there a point where Cersei's like, why would I help you defeat these White Walkers when I can just let them defeat one of you and then worry about defeating the other one when this is over? It's great fucking logic. Some of the characters in this show are so fucking smart that they say something and you yell at the TV. You're like, yes, do that thing. Yes, that's a great idea. (laughs) Was Cersei your favorite character or did you have a different favorite character? Like in the pilot only. No, of the pilot, it's definitely Ed. I mean, listen, I'm not teaching my daughter that beheading is good, and I'm not (laughs) going to behead someone. But in the rules that they've laid out in this pilot episode for this world, teaching his son something that they're going to have to swallow as they Mm -hmm. move into upholding the the reins for Winterfell, I really identify with his parenting of them. He seems like he's trying to do good he also seems like a loyal friend and he's not really interested in the politics he cares more about his family yeah it's a good point i think he even does like small moments like on their on their journey back from beheading someone they find a a giant wolf right a a dire wolf but they find a a wolf that had died on the on the road Mm -hmm. and he sees its little puppies and he says like hey we have to put them out of their misery and your first reaction is no don't kill the animals but he's thinking like like a good parent farmer would Right. He's like, they need their mom. Right. Without them, they're going to die tar- horrible deaths out here. They're going to starve. Malnourished, so his yeah. first instinct is to prevent suffering. And then they end up adopting uh, the pups. And, and then he tells his kids, each of you is responsible for feeding them and bathing them and draining them. Real strong dad energy. So I don't think you just had one favorite, though. You couldn't pick one, could you? No. So in the pilot, I really loved Khal Drogo. Besides the the rape of his his wife bride uh, that he was gifted, um, that was not a highlight for him. But immediately I was like, this guy's got a story to tell. I like the fact that he couldn't speak the same language as everyone else because it that added a lot more mystery to him. And I think even early on, I recognized that while everyone else is scheming and plotting, he may be at a disadvantage because of that. And they're all thinking of him as just like the muscle, like, oh, he has the army. And so early on, I was expecting like Khal Drogo is going to fuck some shit up because they're thinking that he's this mindless horse lord. They're kind of being racist, right? Mm-hmm. That he doesn't speak our language. They're savages, right? They're killing people at weddings. So they're kind of treating him like the other. And I'm like, ah, this guy's more, got more to that. And a- along with him, I also really like Jorah. So Sir Jorah is only in one scene briefly in the pilot. But he's seen as someone from Westeros who says uh, to Daenerys that he used to serve her father. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of a knight. And when you're like, well, what's he doing over here? What's his story? Why is he with the Targaryens? And he clearly makes it that he's loyal to them. So I like the story that it presented of him. And I was like, how is he going to fit in? Because to me, he seems like he could give them information that they may not have. As the show went on, I, I fell in love with so many people. Uh, Tormund Giants Bane, mm-hmm. who may or may not have fucked a bear. Brienne of Tarth, who's a giant woman <sighs> who's trying to be a knight and everyone's Wonderful. a dick. Wonderful. You loved Brienne, right? Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, she was played by Gwendolyn Christie. She's amazing. Not unlike your boy, Jamie Lannister, the sister fucker, who this episode's a bad portrayal of him, but his character has a very interesting arc. I think so, yeah. He gets Luke Skywalkered and <laughs> turns into a, a changed man. Giving away spoilers. We'll cut that off. 
It's just like his hand. (laughs) Now we may have to keep it because that's too good a joke. Let's talk about the major houses because there are so many characters and (laughs) they don't all appear in this episode. But I think it's important to kind of outline the big families that make up the kingdom. These are the teams. Sure. Did you want to start us off with the good old boys? Yeah. Let's talk about the Starks first. The Starks are our main team that we start with our main family so they're the warrens of the north which is where we spend most of our time in the first episode up in winterfell where they are they constantly warn everyone that winter is coming they're known for keeping their distance from the shenanigans in king's landing and they're kind of loyal to a fault i mean all of their discussions uh, ned to his kids catelyn to ned ned to the king it's all about being cautious but being there for each other Mm -hmm. and uh, when the king robert baratheon tells ned i need you it's like okay well the king asked for me i gotta go do it Robert Baratheon's the king when our show opens, having previously led a rebellion to take the throne from the the mad Targaryens. The history of this rebellion and what our characters did are major plot points of the new fucked up wars we start. Yeah, there's a lot of like old grudges and, and especially during the first few seasons, there's a lot of like, what did you do during Robert's rebellion? What side were you on? Were you with the Targaryens? Were you not? Grudges still being held from when Bobby took the throne. And then he married Cersei Lannister in an alliance with the Lannisters, the famously rich family that tries to control the Seven Kingdoms because they conveniently chose the right time to align. Yeah. (laughs) So they're a scheming family. They're smart. They seem to always be on the right side of history. They married into the throne with Cersei. Jaime Lannister is a famous knight and a member of the Kingsguard. He's sworn to protect King Robert Baratheon. And he was also a member of the King's Guard for the Targaryens. Yes. And the Targaryens used to be in charge, as we talked about. So they used to have dragons and they used to rule the Iron Throne. We get the sense, though, early on in the series that there are no more dragons. Even Daenerys is given a gift of three dragon eggs that are fossilized. And Viserys and Daenerys, who are now hanging out with the horse people, uh, they're the only known surviving members of the family. And the last people that we meet in the pilot, the Night's Watch, we mentioned they're a group of criminals and bastards, and they defend the realm from the free folk and wildlings. So they hang out up by the wall. So a lot of players in this pilot alone. And then there's like a few dozen other houses. So if you were suddenly transported to the world of Game of Thrones... Knowing about the houses, which do you think you would really, like, belong in? And is that the one that, like, you'd want to be in? So, sorry to be the bummer, but <laughs> I don't think that I'd be any of these families if I went by, like, <laughs> identifying with my actual life. I'd probably be in Flea Bottom in King's Landing, maybe an apprentice <laughs> to a sword maker. I align with the Starks. I really like them. I mean, I'd like to think that I'd want to be a Stark, but I could never weather one of those winters so i think if i were choosing a noble house a rich house i'd probably go with the tyrells because their lands are fruitful everyone that comes out of there seems to be gorgeous so (laughs) so i'd probably head on over to high garden if i was picking yeah i don't think you would survive in the north i mean you didn't last very long in jersey no so i don't think you'd survive winterfell no i i definitely don't think so but you came from pennsylvania so i think you're uh a winterman. Yeah, we would. My family would be the Starks. I mean, not because we're a great house and we're rich, but we're stubborn people <laughs> from cold lands, and we're blue collar folks who are usually taken advantage of by by uh, smarter, cleverer folks. I could totally see Robert Baratheon showing up and asking my dad to come work double overtime on a Sunday, <laughs> and my dad would totally do it. Well, that's some of your backstory, and I know you're really into the backstory of Game of Thrones. That's one of your pros. So tell us more about your pros for this pilot. 
Yeah, I love the lore, the the lore, lore, lore. And I think that's where I see a separation between fantasy like this and fantasy like Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, like you go, oh, Gandalf's a cool character. And they're like, yeah, he's been al alive for 7,000 years. Let me walk you through this. And I'm like, okay, I'm out. That is not relatable. I cannot connect to that lore right. of an immortal being, right, living 7,000 years. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the plot points, especially in the early scenes, are about the last war. And so like – you know, my dad talking to me about, you know, his buddies going to Vietnam is like what a lot of these characters are talking about. Their parents and their older siblings fought in these wars. So the lore, even when you talk about Robert's Rebellion, which is the big war before this series, it's very interesting that all of this information moves around about what people did. And I find that really fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, when when Bobby says to Ned, I haven't seen you in nine years, but they're like best friends. I'm like, one, why haven't they seen each other in nine years? And why did they see each other nine years ago? We know that's not when Bobby became king. He became king longer ago. So what happened nine years ago? So I get very excited to learn that. And you do. You yeah. They slowly drip that. I, I think also for me, the music yeah. is just fantastic. Raman Dawadi did the soundtrack for the entire series. And although there are a lot of great bangers in this, in season six, he has a song called Light of the Seven. Fucking drop what you're doing and listen to Light of Well, okay, listen to the rest of this podcast. Then drop what you're doing <laughs> and go listen to Light of the Seven. Yeah. It's it's not a sword fight, it's not an explosion, it's not a dragon. It's just two people talking. And the music is so dramatic and the information they're giving is so specific and so interesting. I, I was hooked. Is is that some of the same stuff you sort of were into and, and sort of that lore and the history? So I really enjoy the music. But what I really liked about this show, this specific episode, is they do a really good job of centering the world around the Starks. For me, from the minute you or the minute you finish the episode, you are bought in. The Starks are who you want to be with. You want to see them succeed in all sorts. They have this little tiny subplot where they identify you with one of the young daughters and her wanting to shoot an arrow and mm -hmm. sword fight and be you know and not do needlepoint and things of that nature and you feel like yeah she should if she wants to so i feel <laughs> like they do a really good job of investing you in the starks and really creating that world in just a few scenes they identify the political issues not the depth of them they identify the two future threats to life as they know it coming from two directions even if you don't know that's what they're doing right i just think that they do a really good job of like setting the scene and hooking you and for me i mean i know that you were like that was okay because you weren't like super in the fantasy world but my jaw was on the floor i could not wait yeah, for the yeah. next episode I think, unfortunately for me, some of the things that I would say are cons of the show is I think they did a really good job establishing that in the pilot and early. And later on, that lore mattered less than I than I hoped it would be, maybe. I think that right. a lot of us felt as the series went on, we were piecing together parts of this history and parts of this lore and information that would matter. One of the characters early in the show says, knowledge is power. Later in the show, another character says, power is power and like threatens to have him stabbed. And I feel like the show kind of undercuts us a little bit like that. But I think what happens is I, I think I feel like I know when it happens, which is there's an episode in season five called Hard Home. And Hard Home is is basically just a big action scene. Yeah. And it's fucking amazing. <laughs> it's so fucking good. It's tense. It's the effects are great. It's it, it reveals plot and all of those things. So Hard Home for me was 
you watched Hard Home and you were like, that was fucking amazing. I feel like what the producers and the writers missed, though, is Hard Home worked so well because it was built up to for so long. And without giving any way the plot in the episode, it's something that you're you're slowly building to. There's pieces of it. I feel like what happened is, is as the later seasons happened, they did more of these big event episodes and less of the building yeah. to those big event episodes. I kind of there are people who watch a football game and watch their home team and watch every play. Yeah. And then there are people who watch NFL Red Zone and just watch the highlights. And I feel like by the time we got to it in Game of Thrones, they were only giving us the highlights in the later seasons. It was just, well, here's a battle. Here's here's an explosion. Here's a dragon. Here's a whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I get that you want to do that because we all loved Hard Home, but Hard Home built for five seasons. And all of the little plot pieces led up to it, which is why the payoff meant something. <sighs> I think it's like, this may be a bad analogy, but I feel like... We spent five seasons like sting tantric sex style, and then we finally got an orgasm. And then Game of Thrones writers was like, cool, you love orgasms? Here's an orgasm. Here's an orgasm. Here's an orgasm. And I was like, no, 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 wait, we love the foreplay. And they're like, no, 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 no. I saw you like that orgasm. Let's hit you up again and again and again <laughs> and again. And I, I get tired. Yeah. I'm like exhausted. One of my big cons for the series. The incessant rape, the the inventing or or turning up the volume on consensual or non-consensual throughout the series and then specifically even in this episode they really drive it home on the incessant rape i think that there was more debate about it in later seasons but it it didn't stop happening no did you at any point ever want to check out of the show because of how bad it? i know there were certainly times where i was like like i roll my eyes at at some of these scenes later seasons did you ever want to check out because it was so bad there is a season that it is over and over and over again. And it really feels like they have nothing yeah, else yeah. to do or talk about. We have learned seasons before that the man that is committing these frequent rapes and just horrible sexual acts, even on a, a consenting woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is horrible. <laughs> he he cuts yeah. off a character's penis. He completely tortures him for we don't know how long a long time makes it tor- torments the man to where he no longer calls himself by his name he goes by a different name forgets who he is his individuality from this we know mm-hmm. this man is evil we're very clear about that we don't need every episode for him to beat and rape his wife we get it that's what he's doing <laughs> he's horrible it just I never wanted to walk away from the show. At that point I was so invested in like the bigger picture and what was going to happen, but I never wanted to walk away. I it never got to that point, but I don't want to say that and then put myself in the position where I'm saying that it was okay because it definitely was not okay. Yeah, I think I had the same thing where like it was never that I was going to stop watching because of it. But it did detract from an episode. Like when I was like, "Oh, here we go again." Like insert rape scene yeah. okay like it was even enchanting. you're at a funeral yeah you're at a funeral and they're like let's squeeze in a rape scene and you're like could we not yeah it was disenchanting the funeral was depressing enough in in the sense that also like sometimes bad acting can be and i did feel like in mm-hmm. the beginning of the series some of these characters and a lot of them are or these actors and a lot of them are children they just weren't super yeah, strong yeah. actors you had them in contrast to sean bean who is a brilliant actor yeah yeah they weren't bad i want to be clear but it was a little disenchanting when you know they they didn't fully know their character they weren't 
mature enough to really understand what they were getting themselves into as an actor. So I, but that definitely grows. And I'm just pointing that out as a con of this particular episode and maybe a couple of the others because as the season yeah, as yeah. the seasons go on these actors are are spectacular and their nominations are just proof of that i think that's really fair i think when you had mentioned that you didn't like the acting i was a little surprised mm-hmm. because my recollection is that they were pretty good actors but re-watching the pilot i'm like okay i i see what she's saying i i think some of them grow into this role a little bit uh, so i think that's that's fair what other shows are like this? I, I mentioned I'm not a fantasy guy, but these these sort of large cast, medieval, big plots. What are, If you had to start to describe this as someone who hadn't seen Game of Thrones, what would you kind of connect it to? Yeah. I mean, shows I've seen, I'm sure there are plenty of fantasy shows that are similar to this. They all kind of Venn diagram at some level. But the shows I've seen, The Last Kingdom, which is on Netflix, it, it is also based on a book series is excellent and is it is about the domination of England so it's really whereas Game of Thrones kind of imitates that they they're a fictionalization of history historical fiction yeah okay it's fantastic the characters are very well done I haven't read the books but the show is so good and then Expanse is kind of like mm-hmm. it's on Amazon it's kind of like the space Game of Thrones because yeah they're yeah. both largely <laughs> I mean all these shows are largely around like control over territory resources power is power and in some cases in space power is how you live <laughs> well yeah power is literally like will our ship crash into the sun so the expanse was actually written by people who worked for george rr R. martin so it literally wouldn't have happened without game of thrones yeah i think those are good examples i think along those same veins are shows like vikings and tudors which have similar realms. In fact, Tudors is about the War of the Roses with yeah. uh, with Henry Tudor. I think they're similar. So is Outlander. Uh, it's probably less violent, but more fantasy, like more fantasy, fan- like fantasy. <laughs> Let me ask you this. When we look at these historical shows, mm-hmm. right? Let's throw out Tudors, right? Let's Because that's that's supposedly based on real events, right? And let's look more at Outlander. Let's look at Vikings. Let's look at Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they say... This is kind of medieval England-ish. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of use the excuses of how medieval England was to back up some of the things that happen in the show. For example, yeah. well, women can't lead an army because back in medieval England, women couldn't lead an army. Well, you're not in medieval England. You're in Westeros. You could have made it be whatever the fuck you wanted. Yeah. Do you find that sometimes creators use this like, well, it's based on as a crutch because... You could easily have no rape happen on the show. Right. And say, well, in Westeros, they're not big on rape. And no one would not watch the show because of that. Like, why can't we have fantasies where women are, like, not subservient and raped by men? I mean, I think it's a lot of the same reason why people keep around statues of men who were, like, pioneers of and fought for slavery to remain and oh. <laughs> subservient uh, races. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that people, like, Thing, to be able to put things in boxes and the way that things are is the way they are. Um, so I think that people are just more, co- in general, more comfortable in those boxes. The rules. <laughs> the rules, yeah. And so I think the key thing here is is when you look at these other shows that we're talking about, I, I think even if they didn't come out after Game of Thrones, they're, they're all kind of being like compared to Game of Thrones. I don't think 
anything has ever hit the way Game of Thrones hit in terms of this. Like even to the point where they're actually going to a prequel. Yes. To have yes. the next Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, they're so desperate for the next Game of Thrones that they're doing Game of Thrones again. They're doing a prequel series. Yeah, I think all of these shows now are trying to be like the next Game of Thrones. And you will hear it in pitches. You mentioned The Expanse. When The Expanse was pitched to me. They said, oh, it's like Game of Thrones in space. Yeah. And it is. But also, I think that shows to people that Game of Thrones has become like the diehard now. Yeah, the precedent. Where for years, when you would make a movie, you go, oh, it's like diehard on a plane. Oh, it's like diehard at an airport. It's diehard on a ship. <laughs> now people use this like Game of Thrones. Oh, it's Game of Thrones in space. It's Game of Thrones in the future. It's Game of Thrones with Vikings, right? <laughs> so you said that people pitched you The Expanse. It's just like Game of Thrones in space. And you're like, yeah, I'm into that. Let me try it out. You finished Game of Thrones and you were super thrilled with the end. So would you tell someone to watch Game of Thrones? Yes. Okay. But, <laughs> yes, but I have some caveats around this. I loved, 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 loved Game of Thrones. I still watch Game of Thrones deep dive videos on YouTube. I recently purchased several Game of Thrones compendium novels. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. The ending of this series felt rushed for me. The rumors at the time were that HBO and George R.R. R. Martin wanted the show to go on for several more seasons. They were looking at like 10 or 12 seasons. But D&D, the producers, were concerned that their cast is aging, they're getting famous, they're being in shitty Terminator movies. <laughs> so they wanted to wrap it up. They were also getting job offers for other stuff, which I'm sure had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so there are several big payoffs for things. Several character storylines were awesome. You felt it. It was great. There's several moments in the final episodes that are fucking rock solid and worth the eight years. But as the show kind of nears its end, there are several characters who do things very out of character. Yeah, and definitely. And you're like, wait, what happened? There are several characters who, who die, who are still alive and well in the books, and even the actors are like, the fuck happened to my storyline it seems to me that as you sort of left the novels and you just had these broad strokes it feels like you had broad strokes and you didn't have the nuance to work with yeah an easy example of this i i think it's a little it's it's a bit picking on but we mentioned in the later seasons uh, hbo was doing like little making of vignettes at the end of each episode and in one of them a character does something very stupid in the episode and and so fucking boneheaded you're like what the fuck were they thinking? And in the doc, uh, <laughs> the documentary that appears after the episode, D&D address it directly and are like, oh, yeah, this character kind of forgot about this thing. And you're like, no, dumbass, you forgot about this thing. But that's kind of become like a meme. How is it possible that, that so many people watched this show and no one else was like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. Our major character is doing a major decision here and it's fucking up everything. Just FYI. Um, so I think it's a little unfair. Uh, because everyone now harps on everything they didn't like about the show, right. even things that made sense, right. that they would go, oh, well, I guess they kind of forgot. But I, I think for me, there were several plot lines that I was very excited to see resolved, and I either felt they were rushed in the resolution, or I felt they came out of character to meet the needs of a production. Yeah. Meaning we don't have enough episodes, or that actor is actually going to do something else. There were decisions that I felt like didn't quite match what I expected. Mm -hmm. And now, that's not to say that I, I disagree like i'm fine with disagreeing like a character does something i'm like well i disagree <laughs> but there were things that i'm like that character wouldn't do that based on what you've told us but if you like swords or dragons or horses or knights or boobs or zombies like you should watch this show i think if you have any interest in a fantasy and you're not turned off by graphic sexual violence that's my big caveat 
for me, there are certain moments I mentioned hard home earlier. There's the battle of the bastards. There's a scene where somebody confronts Jamie Lannister, who you mentioned. Um, There are a few scenes in this that I just go, that's, that's worth clocking in the 500 hours or whatever it is that we talked about. 500 minutes a season. 500 minutes a season. Yeah. So I would absolutely recommend this to anyone, but with that caveat, because there's, you know, you, you average three rapes an episode and that's just like three too many. (laughs) There is a lot of that. I I definitely get it. I I would only say that maybe try it, even if that's not your cup of tea, unless you're going to have a triggering episode because something horrible has happened to you or someone you love don't watch it for sure. But if you're like, there's so much more to it. If you don't mind fast forwarding through that stuff for the like guts of this show. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth it. Those things are not plot dependent. So keep moving fast forward. I fast forward through scenes in Outlander all the time. (laughs) That being said, I would absolutely, I don't regret one second of watching the show. I don't regret the uh, millions of hours of pondering and conversations and after shows and guessing and trying to figure out this puzzle that George R. R. Martin started. Sure, like there are plenty of things that I don't love about it, decisions I wouldn't have made. But I sit here at the other end of this series in awe of everything. And I'm one of the few, admittedly, that wasn't like pissed off at the show at the end. I had some disappointing things. I wish that they would have spent more time. I wish there was more finesse, but I wasn't like, damn it, D&D, F this show. I was more like, well, okay, hopefully they do something better and more thorough when they release the books. That's kind of where my head was at. Mm. Stephen King, a famous novelist who has never met an ending that he couldn't fuck up. Once said about Game of Thrones, I love this last season of Game of Thrones, and then he gave some spoilers, but he said there's been a lot of negativity about the win- the windup, but I think it's just because people don't want any ending. Correct. And you know what they say, all good things, right, come to an end. I think there is an element of that. Mm-hmm. I think that there is an element of you couldn't please anybody. No. Uh, we saw this with Sopranos. We see this with Star Wars. Seinfeld. Uh, Seinfeld. Yeah, endings are difficult. Yep. And I think that there's way more cases of endings that didn't work than were. For me, I was probably 50-50. As you guys know, we've talked, there's lots of characters, so there's lots of plot lines. Mm -hmm. It's not just, will Luke Skywalker beat Darth Vader, right? There's not one sole thing. It's very complicated. Yeah. I wasn't unhappy with every decision made. I wasn't unhappy with most decisions made. There were just a few that rubbed me and many other fans the wrong way. We disagree on which ones, too. I think that when your show, how it ends, has a petition sent to HBO with thousands of signatures that you have to redo the final season you know you didn't do it perfect oh no absolutely but i mean that's what happens and several of the cast members had funny jokes about like what they thought like oh i read the final script and i thought it was a joke said one of the major characters but i i think we're both in the same boat here nicole where we may have some problems with the finale and and we are not alone but finales tend to be divisive it is the end and some people aren't happy with the end and i certainly was less happy than you were But we're coming away saying this is HBO at the top of its game. It's got the production value. It's got the acting. It's got the resources. It's got the hype. It's got the for the most of the show. Right. They've got a great source of of the story. I don't see how you can look at a phenomenon like this and not say to try it out. You have to be in the right frame of mind to really invest in any show. And sometimes, you know, you want a happy show. Then go to Ted Lasso. (laughs) Sometimes you want 
a sad show. Sometimes you want different things. So I don't know what's going to be somebody else's launching off point, but the first episode did it for me. That being said, I super love these fantasy things. Well, that wraps up season one for us, but don't worry, we're already hard at work on season two, which will be premiering in the new year. As we mentioned up top, look out for our special spoiler-filled conversation about all the deep-cut Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire lore, which we'll be releasing in two weeks. Nothing says the holiday season like a man with a golden hand sexily choking you to death. Hashtag Valenquar fetish. Check out our Twitter feed at It's Not TV Pod for further details about our podcast and to connect with our community. And please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. A very special thank you to producer Matt Malone. It's Not TV is a production of Bruit Media. We wish you good fortune in the wars to come. This is for my fan base. This is for the true crime folks trying to find out what happened to Pat Williams. By episode six, they want answers. I forgot about that whole purpose of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs>